0: Well, good morning, Church in the Valley. Thank you for joining us for our online worship service. Uh, My name is Adam Groza, and it's my honor and privilege to bring a message this morning from the book of Philippians as we've been looking at this book in the New Testament in a series called Celebration and Growth. And I hope you're learning from this, and I hope that God is teaching you some things that are encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. And if you're watching and you're not a believer I hope that this is just drawing your heart towards Christ and making you want to uh, look more into the gospel and learn more about Christ. Well, this morning I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. We're going to be we're going to be looking at verses one through eleven. So Philippians chapter three, verses one through eleven, and the title of the message uh, this morning is "The Heart of the Gospel." The heart of the gospel, and um, This is an important passage because it is going to give us really the core of what it is we should be focusing our faith and our joy on in our journey with Christ. So the heart of the gospel. Now before I read this passage, this is a little different than what I normally do, but before I read this passage, I want to draw your attention to a part of Philippians chapter 3. That's actually a little later on in the chapter. If you look at verses, um, starting in verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17. I want to just notice something and then make an observation and then we'll read our passage. But Philippians chapter 3 in verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So I want to draw our attention to those two verses. Last week we looked at the the power of godly examples in the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul is, at the end of chapter 3, kind of reminding us of their example. But then he says something about the enemies of... The cross. He warns the church that there are enemies of the cross in verse 18. And when you think about enemies, you know, in every war there are enemies or an enemy. You think about the Revolutionary War, the enemy at that time was Great Britain. We think about World War II, uh, the enemy were, were the Axis powers, and that's who the Allies were fighting against. In the War on Terror, the enemy. Uh, was the Taliban, and then later ISIS, and so for every war there is an enemy, and in the spiritual realm there is opposition to Christ, and some people set them up, set themselves up, as enemies. Paul says, enemies of the cross. And so, really what Paul is going to be saying in the passage we're going to read, verses 1 through 11, the passage we're going to be studying, Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't be an enemy of the cross. Paul's going to encourage us to to really lift high Christ and focus on the gospel and really understand what is the heart of the gospel. And our passage um, that we're going to read in just a moment, verses 1 through 11, Um, I think what you're going to see is this warning against these enemies, warning against people who teach a different gospel, warning against false teachers. We're going to see warning, and we're going to see testimony, and we're going to see righteousness. Those are the three big themes of verses 1 through 11 that I'm putting under this title, the heart of the gospel. Warning, and testimony, and righteousness. So, With that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 11, and you can be looking for those themes as I read. So, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we gather by video as people who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah And we have put our full confidence in the gospel. And I pray that this morning you would remind us of why we should continue to do that. Remind us, God, in this passage of the heart of the gospel so that we can direct our affections and our hopes and our dreams towards the kingdom of Christ and towards his rule and reign both in our lives and in the world. So, God, for those watching, would you give them faith to receive this message ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray Lord that you would convict us of areas of sin in our life. Pray Lord that you would encourage us in ways that we're just down and discouraged. God, you love your people and I pray God that you would minister to your people through your word this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, three things, a warning, a testimony and righteousness. And these things are going to help us to understand the heart of the gospel. So first, a warning. We saw this in verse 1 and verse 2. You want to look there. He says, to write these things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you, or some translations say safeguard for you. Paul is out to protect the church. He loves the church. We've seen that. And if you love people, you want to protect them. You want to protect them from things that could harm them. And false teaching harms the church. So Paul wants to protect the church. And notice what he says in verse 2 look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul says three times, look out. And so he's warning the church of danger, specifically the danger of false teachers. Now the Bible is filled with warnings against false teachers. Jesus warned against false teachers in Matthew 7:15 when he said beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are more ravenous than wolves. So Jesus warns against false teachers and he teaches us something about the nature of false teaching. Usually false teachers don't come with, you know, a name badge that says false teacher. They come pretending to be faithful pretending to be committed to God's word. And yet they alter God's word. They change the gospel. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus warns us. Peter also warns us. 2 Peter 3.16 says, uh, Peter speaks of ignorant and unstable people who twist or distort the scripture to their own destruction. So Jesus warns against false teachers Peter says there are ignorant and unstable people who are going to twist, again, misrepresent Scripture, and they will do that to their own destruction. And then in our passage, Paul warns against false teachers. And the consequences of false teachers, false teaching, is very, very serious, both to the false teacher and also to the church. Peter says that false teachers distort the scriptures to their own destruction. Matthew eighteen six. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, in other words, whoever leads astray one of these little ones who's following me, Jesus says this, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Peter says false teachers face Destruction, Jesus said, be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and throw it into the ocean than be a false teacher and lead someone astray. So what we can take away from this is that you do not want to be a false teacher. You don't want to fall under the sway of false teaching. And this is why Paul says, look out, look out, look out. He loves these people. And so he's warning them. Well, false teaching isn't just bad for false teachers and those who follow false teachers. It's just terrible for the church because the unity of the church is the gospel. You remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, we saw the partnership of the gospel. And, and, and Paul says that the church at Philippi partnered in the gospel, and that means fellowship. And what that means is that our unity is the gospel. That's what brings us together. And if a false teacher can come into a church and confuse or twist the gospel, then it means judgment for them and it means disunity for the church. The thing that is our center, Christ and his work on the cross and in the resurrection, is distorted and so unity shifts and is destroyed. So false teaching brings damage to the teacher and to his followers and it also brings damage to the unity of the church. This is serious. So Paul's warning about it, just like Jesus did. Just like Peter did. I remember years ago I was in Korea and I was going to a church to preach, and I was teaching a class at a seminary there, uh, doing various things. But as I walked into this church, I noticed a sign, uh, and it was in Korean, so I didn't, I couldn't read it. But it had, um, it had, a, it had someone holding a book, and then it had a red circle and then a red line, prohibiting, you know, somebody. It was there to teach something. And it said something in Korean. I didn't know what it meant. So I asked my friend, what does that say? And my friend said, that is a warning sign to false teachers. Apparently churches in Korea have had people come in, be charismatic, be winsome, great personality, outgoing, and gather people, teach false doctrine, and split the church. And so churches in Korea... Many of them took to putting this sticker on the very front door of the church, warning false teachers not to come in and spread false teaching. And as I went throughout Korea, both that year and in years to follow, I noticed more and more of these signs. Churches in Korea are just expressing their awareness of the danger of false teaching. Jesus was clear about that. Paul is being clear about that. And we as a church must be aware of the danger of false teaching. If Paul says, look out, look out, look out, we had better be looking out and be aware of the danger of false teaching. This is one of the reasons why in 1 Timothy 1, 9, Paul says that a pastor must be able to teach and to defend. Defending the flock against false teaching is an important part of the job description description of a pastor because as Paul says uh, as Paul says right here in the passage so so Paul says look a pastor must be able to teach and defend and he's writing to these people modeling that kind of shepherd's heart that he learned from Christ warning against the danger of false teaching now notice in our passage in verse 2 Paul says look out for the dogs Paul calls the false teachers dogs. Now, this insult falls kind of flat in our own context because we tend to love our dogs and we take great care of uh, our pets and they are kind of part of the family. So we just have to set our cultural perspective on dogs aside for a minute and understand that in um, ancient Eastern cultures, uh, in most places, uh, there was a general hatred of dogs Kind of a hatred of dogs. A dog was not something you wanted to be associated with. They were unclean. Uh, they were looked at as dirty, and, and they were just generally not welcome. And there's uh, irony in this passage, as Paul calls the false teachers dogs, because um, it, it was it was common for the Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were not welcome. And so Paul is using this term that was often derogatorily used of Gentiles. He's using it towards false teachers whom we know were fellow Jews along with Paul. So Paul is calling <clears throat> these false teachers dogs. And their false teaching, I mean, you know, what what were they teaching? What was false? Well, they were teaching as Jewish converts, they were teaching that new Gentile converts not only had to believe in Jesus, but they also had to follow Jewish customs. So they false teachers said, you need to believe in Jesus, and that's good, but you also need to be circumcised if you're a man, and you also need to follow the Jewish customs. These people were called the Judaizers, and if you're interested in this, you can read the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians is really about Um, about the danger of this false teaching of adding works. In this case, specifically works associated with Judaism, the danger of adding those works to the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone. And so Paul is warning against these false teachers. And let me just say a general word about false teaching, and I think you'll find this to be true. Generally, the kinds of false teaching that Paul is pointing out and warning against Generally, false teachers get three things wrong. They add works to faith. In other words, they get salvation wrong. Or they get the person of Jesus wrong. They either deny his divinity or they deny his humanity. So false teachers get salvation wrong, usually by adding works. They get the nature of Jesus wrong. And then third, they get God wrong. They get the nature of God wrong. Specifically, they usually deny The Trinity. And so, just as a Christian, you can guard yourself against false teachers by paying attention to people who add works to salvation, paying attention to people who downplay the humanity or the deity of Jesus, and avoid people who, in any way, confuse the very clear biblical teaching that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. False teachers. Jesus says, Come in sheep's clothing, but they are ravenous wolves. I remember my own experience with false teaching when I was living in Burbank and I was working at a national corporation there in customer service and um, there there were some people there that invited me to their church and they were very outgoing and they invited me to the barbecues and they were just just really kind and nice. And I thought, well, these these people really want to be friends. But I realized very quickly that they were part of some Christian cult that taught that in addition to believing in Jesus, you also had to be baptized by their group. And really, your life was kind of controlled by their group. And you could lose your salvation at any time. So they were denying salvation by faith alone They were teaching that baptism was part of your salvation and they were also teaching that you could lose your salvation. But I experienced firsthand just the way in which false teaching can come across from people who appear to be so kind and loving but as Jesus warned, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so hopefully those sort of illustrate the point, which is what Paul is making. We need to watch out. Pastors need to watch over We need to be safeguarded in the truth so that we are not swept away by false teaching. And the most dangerous thing is thinking we don't have to be on guard because Paul is saying to the church of Philippi and to us that we are to be on guard, that we are to look out against those who distort the clear truth of the gospel. Well, so that's the warning. There are enemies of the cross and we need to be on guard There's also a testimony. So Paul goes from describing what is false to, in verses 3 through 9a, kind of the beginning of verse 9, he goes to describing what is true and using his own testimony to kind of illustrate what is true. It is false that good works can save you, either in whole or in part. And Paul uses his own life to illustrate that point. If anyone could establish their own righteousness, if anyone could do that, it would have been Paul. But he couldn't do it, and neither can we. And there's a simple reason why, because we are sinners. Paul says that his good works couldn't save him, and he says in verse 7 that all of his good works eventually were, he counted them as a loss. He says, whatever I gain, whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. And then in verse 8, he says, all my good works together could not not save me. And he calls them in verse 8, rubbish, which really means dung, means excrement. Our good works alone amount to nothing but waste. Good works cannot save us, not in whole and not in part, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And anything that's not consistent with that message is false teaching. And Paul says, don't fall for it. Paul says, my life illustrates the point. Well, in laying out his testimony, I think it's interesting. Paul kind of gives us a good, sort of good example about how to give a testimony. Because a good testimony shines the spotlight on Christ. Notice what he says in verse 7. I count it all as a loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I'll give up everything I've done. Everything that points to me, I will gladly give it up for the sake of Christ. Everything else is loss. Everything else is rubbish. A good Christian testimony shines a spotlight. On Christ. And also, a good Christian testimony kind of is honest about the grossness of sin. Paul says, All that stuff in my life that was representative of my pride and my self righteousness and my sin, it is all waste. It is excrement. It is rubbish. And so Paul says, Let me be honest about my former way of life. My life before Christ was not glorious. Now, I say those two things, that a testimony should shine a spotlight on Christ and should be honest about the loss, the waste of sin and a sinful life apart from Christ. I say that because sometimes testimonies can almost celebrate and glory in past sins and past ways. And sometimes in a testimony, you get the sense that someone is bragging about what they used to do or what they used to be. And sometimes testimonies can have very little to do with Christ. Christ is almost an, an afterthought or a, an epilogue or a postscript to the story. I remember in college hearing testimonies and, you know, they'd be 45 minutes long and, you know, 43 minutes would be about life before Christ. And, you know, and, and it was kind of celebrated. And then at the very end, just sort of as an add on, you know, this very quick You know, but then I became a Christian and now my life is different. Let's pray. (laughs) And that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is shining a spotlight on Christ. And Paul is being honest about just the waste of life apart from Christ. But this is how we should tell our story. God has given you a story. Just like God has given me a story, a story of conversion. We don't just read about how God converts people. We experience conversion. and, And your story Of your conversion is powerful and God can use it in many ways, provided it shines a spotlight on Christ and provided it is honest just about the waste of life um, apart from Christ. Well, these are important things. Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, We are to put on Christ like a garment. And so when we give our testimony, we want people to see Christ. We want them to walk away understanding this person's story really is all about this person named Jesus. So we've seen a warning. We've seen a testimony. And now I'd like us to look at the matter of righteousness in verses 9, sort of the second part of verse 9 through verse 11. And really what what Paul is saying is very simply this, that Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. And this is the heart of the gospel. The title of the message is the heart of the gospel. False teachers make human effort part of righteousness. Paul says, no, Christ is our righteousness. And a good Christian testimony shines a spotlight on the fact that Christ is our righteousness, it's important to understand that in the Bible, and, and some of you have read the whole Bible, and you know this, and others maybe haven't. That's okay. But when you read the Bible, it's important to understand that fellowship with God is based on righteousness. In order to have fellowship with God, you must possess righteousness. And if you don't have righteousness, you are separated from God. You, you're you not able to be in the presence of God. Um. As Richard Melech, uh, uh, an author who wrote a commentary on the book of Philippians says, he says, the basic question for all persons is the question of righteousness. It's the basic question for you. It's a basic question for me and for everybody else. It's the question of righteousness. You see, God is without sin. And if you want fellowship with God, you had better be morally perfect as he is perfect. That, that means not only do you not have sin... But you also have all the godly character that God has. That's righteousness. And, um, and, and we don't have that in and of ourselves. Um, the question is, well, if, if it's true that in order to have righteousness and in order to be in the presence of God, um, we must not only not have sin, but we have to have godly character, well, who's righteous? Who's righteous? Righteous. Who can stand before a holy God and be declared innocent of sin? Who can say that their character is perfect like God? Paul says, I couldn't do that. And I know I can't do that. And if you're honest, you, you can't do that either. You can't say, I'm without sin and I am morally perfect. Those who want to establish their own righteousness usually try to, try to do this by playing a game of comparisons. You know, you can always think of somebody that's worse than you. You can always appease your conscience by saying, "Well, I've done some bad things, but I'm not as bad as that person." You know, that person's really bad. I'm just kind of bad. And so we play this comparison game, and we say we're good, but all we mean by good is not as bad as that person. We don't mean good in the sake in the sense of biblical righteousness, which is without sin and morally perfect. And so people play the comparison game And then they say they're good in a relative sense compared to other people. But that's just a game that we play with each other and a game that people play with God. But according to the Bible, God is the standard of righteousness. He's holy, he's without sin, and he's altogether righteous in every way, perfect. And on the other hand, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the bad news is, to enter into God's presence, we must be righteous. But in ourselves, we've sinned, and we're not morally perfect. We don't have our own righteousness. That's the bad news. The good news, the good news is that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died, and he rose again, and he paid for the penalty of our sins with his own blood. And if we trust in him He saves us from our sins, and he, Jesus, becomes our righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is why verse 9 is so important, and I want to draw your attention to verse 9. Paul says, To be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, listen, don't be fooled by the false teachers. They, they teach that you're, you have to earn your righteousness, either in whole or in part. And Paul says, your righteousness is not something you can earn. Paul says, I tried for years. You can't do it. You can't earn your own righteousness because we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's Glory, Paul says there is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And this is really the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that righteousness comes from God. It is a gift of God. God's gift. God will give you the righteousness you lack. He will give you the righteousness of Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians 4, you will be clothed forever in the righteousness of of Jesus and to receive that gift that eternal gift all you have to do is believe faith alone we're not saved by a combination of faith and then following some prescribed path or customs or anything like that we are saved by God by grace alone through faith alone in Christ who died and rose again so this is the gospel so I want to ask you Today, where is your righteousness? Everybody needs to settle this question. Everybody needs to be aware that there is a God and we will stand before God. And the only way to enter into God's eternal presence is by having righteousness. And we don't have righteousness on our own, but through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is given to us. So so what are you pointing to for your righteousness? Are you pointing to something you've done? Are you pointing to your sort of track record or are you pointing to um, maybe comparing yourself to other people? Like, you know, you, you know your own heart when you think about your goodness and your righteousness. You know, if asked a question about that, would you sort of point to others and say, well, I'm better than that person. I haven't done that. You see, as Christians, we point to Christ alone. This is the Christian response to the question of righteousness. We point to Jesus and we say, He is my hope. He is my righteousness. He is my Savior. I am betting all my life, both now and forever, on this person and what he has done for me. Because we know that pointing to anything else will not save us, it won't change us, it won't give us peace and it will end in destruction. And if we persist in that belief that somehow we, we can get our own righteousness, we make ourselves to be enemies of the cross. And Paul says, you don't want to be an enemy of the cross. You want to be a recipient of the grace of the cross. And so rather than pointing to your works or your efforts, are you pointing to Christ alone? And saying in faith, He is my righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel. Well, I started by saying that every war has a good enemy. Uh, every war has an enemy. I didn't say good enemy. Every war has an enemy. And in a war, there's some point at which the enemy is defeated. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ defeated our enemy, Jesus Christ defeated our enemy. Sin. And death at the cross. He did that by purchasing our salvation um, and then by defeating death by rising out of the grave on the third day. And Paul points to these glorious realities in verse 10, and this is really the application. So let me read this in closing. Verse 10 Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying, listen, I've I tried to live for my own righteousness, and it got me nowhere. And that's a loss. And now I'm with Jesus, and Jesus is my righteousness. And through suffering, and through every, every endeavor, of faith, I am going to stay close to him and I am trusting in his death and in his resurrection. We don't want to be enemies of the cross. No, we want to guard against false teaching. We want to testify total reliance on Christ and we want to be found in Christ, like Paul, by faith in order to share in the victory of the cross, which we access as a gift of grace. So that's the heart of the gospel. Those three things, warning, testimony, and righteousness. I hope that this encourages you, and I hope that it gives you some things to think about this week as you endeavor to trust in Christ and to grow in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the righteousness of Christ. Father, we can rest from our works and we can trust in Christ because he has done it all. God, I pray for any person who's watching this this morning, who's been pointing at someone else and playing the comparison game, or who is trying to earn their way and they're exhausted and they're defeated, And I pray that this morning you would bring them to the end of that fruitless endeavor and to the cross where they can trust in Jesus and receive his righteousness and be right with you and have fellowship with you and become a child of yours. God, we pray that you would accomplish that by the power of your spirit. Lord, and I also pray that you would help us to testify to the gospel, to guard against false teaching that would harm our unity and that would destroy so many people. Father, we pray that you would help us to be true to the gospel, both in our witness and in our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.